Sometimes things are just so incredibly hard to believe. But they're true. Let me take you to the Arctic this morning. The Arctic woolly bear caterpillar is a little creature that has some rather unique qualities. Most caterpillars stay as a caterpillar before they become a a butterfly or a moth for just a few short weeks. But the Arctic woolly bear caterpillar stays a caterpillar for 14 years and then becomes a moth. Now, the woolly bear caterpillar, the Arctic woolly bear caterpillar, can only be found in the northern archipelago Canadian islands and in Greenland. Now, if you have any knowledge of that part of the world, it gets somewhat cold. And the Arctic woolly bear caterpillar has this unique quality. He lives, notice the verb that I used, he lives his 14 years, 90% of the time, completely frozen. What? How is that possible? You know that most of our physical body is made up of water. 60% of the human body is made up of water. And most critters here on planet Earth are composed of water. What happens when water freezes? It expands. That's why you enjoy your iced tea with ice. And the ice is at the surface of your glass. That's why ice floats even in the Arctic, because it expands. Well, when that happens inside the cell of a a person or a a living creature, the, the water expands when it freezes, it breaks the cell wall, and the creature dies. But not so for the Arctic woolly bear caterpillar. It lives, it lives for 14 years, but it, it lives, it does caterpillar things for just a very short period of time, a matter of weeks every year at the end of the summer. It has this God-given ability to create antifreeze in each of its cells to keep it from, keep the water in its cells from exploding the cell wall and causing the little caterpillar to die. During that 14 years period of time when he's frozen, he has no heartbeat. He does not breathe. Maybe my former medical student daughter would say, it's dead. Oh, no. 
not dead, very much alive. But how can that be? That doesn't make sense to us because it's outside of our usual experience and our observation of life. Let me make a transition here from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. When we look at the spiritual realm of our life, we have this, this thought, this impression, this belief that when we come to Christ, I come to Christ. I'm the one who takes the initiative here. When the truth of the matter is, you do not initiate anything with regard to your salvation. Nothing. You bring nothing to the party. Absolutely nothing. Salvation is, as the prophet Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. Period. How can that be? That, that, that seems to go contrary to our experience and our observation of life. Let me direct your attention to a, a significant portion of Scripture. It's in Romans chapter 9. This particular chapter opens up with the Apostle Paul absolutely heartbroken and beside himself. Listen, listen. Romans chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This great apostle, this wonderful, masterful preacher of God's truth, how he has labored, how he has preached, how he has prayed for his countrymen, the Jews, his fellow countrymen, how he has labored for them, and yet there are so many in his generation that rejected the message he preached, rejected Messiah Jesus. I would give anything I could, Paul says, in effect, that they might see and understand and receive Jesus as Messiah. He continues. Chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. He has said in just the previous verses that the, the Jews have received the law. They have received all of these gifts from God, the, the covenantal promises 
They're the recipients of that. But it's like they don't get it. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise as regarded as descendants, are regarded as descendants. For for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For for though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said of her. The older said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That is a tough paragraph to swallow. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Wait a minute. Jacob, he's the twisting, manipulative scoundrel in Genesis. And God says, Jacob I loved. And Esau, God, passed over. I intentionally used that last phrase, passed over. There's a connection here in the New Testament with the Old Testament. You remember the Exodus event. God told the Israelites, take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, sprinkle it over the doorposts of your house. And that night, the angel of death passed over the Israelites and afflicted, killed all of the firstborn of Israel. That was the final straw for Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally said, I will let these people go. And he did, and they did. But now, in a turn of events, so similar and yet so opposite, God says here in chapter 9, verse 13, that he passed over the firstborn in order that the angel of life might redeem scoundrel Jacob. Wow, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Let's keep reading. What should we say then? Verse 14. There is no injustice with God, is there? (laughs) May it never be. For he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. Salvation depends on God who has mercy. So it doesn't matter how much an individual person wills, desires. And it doesn't matter how much a man acts, runs is the verb that Paul uses here. It doesn't much matter how much you desire or how much you do, salvation depends upon God. As the prophet Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. There's still a bunch of things that just don't quite add up here. According to our experience, according to our observation of life. Let's continue in the text. Verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. For what end? That God be glorified. God is the one who is exalted, that his name is made famous. My friends, I don't want you to miss this. Please listen very carefully to me. Christianity is not antithetical to human reason. But Christianity is not based on human reason. Human reason with our reasonings, our deductions, our syllogisms, much of, of how we understand life and the information that we generate is a result of our observations and our experiences. Christianity has this difference. It's not based on all that stuff. Christianity is based on propositional truth that has been given to us. Because of what God has revealed to us, do we understand how he has worked this world and how he works in the lives of men and women. Christianity is not antithetical to human reason, but it is based on revealed truth that we find in the Scriptures. Now, we can make deductions and we can create syllogisms, um, but it is based not on our experiences and our observations. It's based on Scripture. 
So even though there are things that are hard to believe, difficult to wrap our mind around, we, we, we want to say, how could that possibly be? If we find these things in Scripture, we are receiving information from outside of ourselves. Information that we don't have here on planet Earth without some kind of divine download. Now, Romans chapter 9 is a difficult text for us to understand, admittedly so. How God chooses one and passes over another. Text of Scripture before us this morning in John chapter 6 is of the same genre of difficulty, head-scratching. I really am trying to get this, but I'm struggling. John chapter 6 begins with Jesus feeding an army of people, easily some 20,000 people, with five dinner rolls and a couple of pickled fish. That led, eventually, to Jesus saying of himself, chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He, he used this miraculous um, event, uh, this sign that pointed to who he was, to say, I, I am not here to be your personal miracle worker. I'm simply doing the miracle so that you might take notice of who I am. And he says, I am the one who not only brings life, but sustains life. I am the bread of life, he says. Now, all of what he, has, what he says in, in this chapter, and we're certainly not going to finish it today, uh, there are some, if you look over at verse 66 in this chapter, there are some who, as a result of what Jesus said, declared, I, I, I cannot take this. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't like it. And there's, excuse me, the Scripture says, they did not walk with Jesus anymore. Sometimes, the things that we read in the Bible are such, because they are so different, so otherworldly, so different from our observations and our experiences, we say, I, 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 I can't accept this. It, it is too different. Well, there are some people, many people, that walk away from the truth because they can't will not accept it as truth. Let me read our text this morning. Beginning of verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say... I have come down out of heaven. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that, come down, come, that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. On one level, what Jesus has accomplished so far was productive. Having fed the multitude and declared, I am the bread of life, there was a level of understanding among the Jews in that crowd. They understood that... Um, he said to them, I, I have come down out of heaven as this bread of life, giving life. They, they understood that. They, they, they heard Jesus accurately. But at the same time, they realized, wait a minute. We, we, we know the parents of this guy. Or so they presumed that they knew who Jesus' earthly father was. Uh, it's as as though they they were were trying to wrap their mind around, wait a minute, this guy says he's from heaven, but yet we know where he was born and we know his parents. Wait, wait, wait. wait. He he says he's from heaven and yet he's from the earth. Or to put it more more compactly in uh, theological language, he says he is fully man yet, or fully divine, and yet we know that he is fully man. And they were on this mental loop. Divine? No, human. Divine? No, human. And they're in this loop trying to figure out, how, 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 could, how could this be? Who, who is this guy? And Jesus says, stop your grumbling. He wanted to arrest these mental gyrations that were going on because from their experience, from their observation of life, you can't have two natures. You could be a divine being, an angel, for example. You could be a human being, like all of them, but you're not going to be both. And yet, Jesus was fully God and fully man. How could this be? I put in your notes four propositional statements drawn from our text this morning. And the first one is this. We do not possess the ability to affect our salvation. This, this is a landmark verse in the Bible. John 6, 44. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws it, him. It, it begins with a universal negative. No one can come. Now, when I was in elementary school back in the Dark Ages, we had a single pencil sharpener in one corner of the room. And everybody used a yellow number two pencil. Requiring, on occasion, that you had to go sharpen your pencil. So you'd raise your hand and you'd say, Teacher, can I go sharpen my pencil? Ever the educator, teacher would say, I'm sure you have the ability. Are you asking permission? Ah, we would get it, and we would rephrase our question. May I please sharpen my pencil? And she would give us permission, and we will sharpen our pencil. Well, verse 44 doesn't have anything to do with permission. It does have everything to do with ability. No one can come to Jesus. No one has the ability to come to Jesus. Now, this is going to create some tension in the minds of some of you. Stay with me. We're interested in what the Bible teaches. We're not looking for what our experience is. We're not looking for what our observations of our experience or other, other, other people's experiences are. We're looking, what does the Bible tell us? Remember the, um, um, the, the, the statement that um, R.C. Sproul had on his desk when he was in seminary. I read this to you last week. Mm. You, you are responsible to believe and teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like it to teach. All right. What does the Bible teach about fallen man? Well, I put a number of references in your notes. This is a starting point. It is not exhaustive by any means. But let me give you a thumbnail of what the Bible says about man's inability regarding spiritual matters. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. Romans chapter 6. We are slaves to sin. Colossians chapter 1. We are alienated from God. Romans 7, or, or Romans chapter 8, verse 7. We are hostile to God. Romans chapter 5. We are enemies of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, we possess no ability to please God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, apart from the redeeming work of God, we are unable to discern spiritual truth. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23 says, uh, by way of a rhetorical question, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard is spots? Can a black man just uh, 
just say, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, want some, I want a different skin tone and just change it? Can, 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 a, can a leopard move his spots around or get rid of some? For those that do, we say that's an anomaly or that's a genetic defect. That's a problem. No. It is admittedly difficult for us to wrap our mind around, but the Scriptures tell us that man is dead. We're not struggling. We're not floundering. We're, we're, We're not going down for the third time at the surface of the water. No, we have always been spiritually dead. We have always been lying at the bottom of the ocean We are spiritual stillborns, every one of us. Now that requires that something, something dramatic, drastic happen. Second page of your notes. Here's my second propositional statement, which I draw also from verse 44. God alone compels individuals to be saved. Okay, this, this universal negative that, that begins verse 60, uh, 44 it is followed by a necessary condition. The Latins would say this is a sine qua non, meaning uh, w- um, uh, without which not. You, you must have this. Okay, so for those who who are unable to come to Christ, they cannot do so unless the Father draws him. Well, the the key here is to understand, what, what does the word draw mean? Well, there are many, many will, that will, will say, well, um, this is the wooing. This is the enticing of God. This, this is the manifold uh, working of God such that he is doing everything that he can to, to, to draw the sinner unto himself, to cause the sinner to, to want to come to Christ, want to be saved. And you see, you see God wringing his hands. He's tried everything. He's come up with so many different ways, but, but it's up to the sinner to come to God. Is that what the word draws mean? Let me give you one word answer. No. In the scriptures, when the, you, you find the word, um, uh, the Greek word to draw, helko is what it is in Greek, it, 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 it means to compel. And in certain places, it means to compel with force. Let me highlight a couple places where it shows up. 
John chapter 21. Peter, after he has denied Christ, went fishing. This is after the resurrection. Uh, He hadn't been restored in his relationship with Jesus. Uh, That's just about ready to happen. John chapter 21, Peter's fishing. There's a whole bunch of fish in his net. And Scripture says that Peter drew the net to him. Here's this net that is burgeoning, bursting with fish. And Peter draws the net to himself. Now, that does not mean that Peter said to the net, an inanimate object, by the way, if I needed to remind you of that, here, netty, netty, I know you're full of fishy, fishy, but please, please come to me, and I will take care of you, and I will, I will mend you, and I will stroke you until sunset. No. No. Forcefully. Peter drew the net to himself. He compelled the net. He forced the net to come to him with its load of fish. Let me give you another example. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas have been preaching the gospel. And they have have created some enemies because of those who have responded positively to the gospel. These are not just enemies. These are explosive enemies that hate, loathe Paul and Silas. And so the Scripture says that these wicked men drew Paul and Silas to the police station. It doesn't mean that they wooed them, that they enticed them, that they said, listen, Paul... You're such an eloquent speaker. We really like you in our town. Would you come with us, please, to the precinct? We're fixing lunch today for everyone who comes and and is interrogated in anticipation of their execution. Would you please come? No, no. This is is not a a casual invitation. These wicked men compelled Paul and Silas to come with them. They were drug. They weren't wooed. They weren't compelled to follow these men. Now, this is, this is the kind of, of, of drastic and disruptive action that God takes on behalf of those who do not possess the ability to even understand spiritual truth. In the words of the prophet Ezekiel, what God does is perform spiritual surgery on us. He he rips out that heart of stone that does not beat, that cannot beat, does not have the ability to sustain life, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that can beat, that can't respond that now 
has the ability to sustain life. I'm going to tie some things together here in just a moment. But, but first, I'd, I'd like, for the sake of completeness, I'd like you to, uh, to look with me over at John chapter 12, verse 32. There are some that would say, well, well here's an example of the word draw, that Greek word helko. Here's an example of that Greek word draw, meaning to woo or to entice. Not the case. John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. I will draw all men to myself. But we know that not everyone is saved. So, in what sense is he drawing all men? Well, well, there are there are some evangelicals who who, who see that that they 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 have a, they have a problem with the with the text of scripture. You have all these verses that that I read previously, from point number one regarding man's inability. Um, the, you, you cannot escape the truth of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, for example, that, that we are dead in our, spiritual, uh, in our spiritual state prior to the work of Christ. What, 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 what do we do with that? Well, um, there, are, there are some in, in the camp, I, I, I hesitate to use labels, but sometimes labels can be helpful. Uh, those that are Wesleyan, those that are semi-Pelagian, those that are um, um, Arminian. And I won't go into the history of all of those labels, but there are those um, that would fit under those, li- those labels, those categories, uh, that, that have, to, have to invent something in order to um, make all the, the, the puzzle pieces fit together. Um, and, and they call it prevenient grace. I want you to listen to uh, Dr. Millard Erickson explain what prevenient grace is. Quote, As generally understood, prevenient grace is grace that is given by God to all men indiscriminately. It is seen in God's sending the sunshine and the rain upon all. It is also the basis of all the goodness found in men everywhere. Beyond that, it is universally given to counteract the effect of sin. Since God has given this grace to all, everyone is capable of accepting the offer of salvation. Consequently, there is no need for any special application of God's grace to particular individuals. That, my friends, what I just read is theological fiction. It is an invention that goes well beyond the Scriptures. Um, it, this this does, does damage to 
um, our understanding of grace. Here's the debate, if I can boil it down in a sentence. Uh, and this debate, debate might be labeled um, Arminianism versus Calvinism, um, or um, semi-Pelagianism versus Augustinianism. It, it could be labeled a, a, a couple of different ways. Um, there's nobody that's Augustinian or Calvinism, or Calvinistic, or, or Reformed in their thinking who deny the, 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 the place of preaching, of praying for the lost people in order that may, they may be saved. But all those in that camp I just mentioned will say these are secondary means. The primary means is the working of God. He is the one who chooses. He is the one who elects. He is the one who initiates salvation. And to those where his salvation work has been initiated, the preaching of the gospel and the praying of the saints is effectual to bring them unto Christ. Those in the other camp will say, um, no, no man is the one who is the one who initiates. As though chapter 6, verse 44 in the book of John has been expunged. No man has the ability to come to Christ unless the Father does a drastic work of spiritual surgery. Charles Spurgeon um, once mused, it always seems inexplicable to me that those who claim free will so very boldly for man should not also allow some free will to God. Why should not Jesus Christ have the right to choose his own bride? He has a point. Though it doesn't fit our experience and our observation of how life works, we operate on the basis of what does the Bible tell us? What has God revealed to us? I didn't make these things up. If I made things up, it would be very different from what we're reading here this morning. But this is, this is what God has revealed to us about himself, about his work, about his, the Son? Hmm. Point number three from our text. To be saved, one must be taught by God. Look with me at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. 
everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes, from, comes to me. And this is, this is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. And in that chapter, the prophet uh, Isaiah looks forward to a time in human history where the Israelites are going to be kicked out of God's land. Their time in God's promised land was conditional. They needed to walk with God, obey God, um, listen to him. And they didn't. And so consequently, generations later from Isaiah, the Israelites were kicked out. We call it the Babylonian captivity. When they returned, Isaiah prophesied, their sons would be taught by God because their parents and their grandparents didn't walk with God, didn't listen to God, didn't obey God. So God kicked them out. So now upon their return, Isaiah says, and the sons, the children, will be taught of God so that they might live as new citizens in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, if you will. They might live as citizens in obedience to the king. They will know how the king works, what the king expects, and their life will reflect that. Well, similarly, um, in, in quoting from that particular uh, chapter, uh, Jesus says, uh, they, th those who don't have the ability unless the Father draws them, th those that have been drawn will be taught of God. And my point here is, there are some certain things that need to be understood before a person is able to come to faith. person needs to know that the Bible is our source of divine revelation. God has self-revealed himself here. This book is absolutely unique. Second thing we need to know is that we have the responsibility to believe, to have faith. Now, um, that, that faith has content to it. Remember the, the kitty cat sitting on your lap? Content, affirmation, trust, cat. That, that, that faith has, has, has content. It, it, um, it, it says that, that God is holy. It, it says that God, that, that man rather, is, is sinful. It's, it says that there is one mediator between holy God and sinful man, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man Jesus. These are things that we, 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 we have to know. This is, this, is, this is part of that whole salvific process. Verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So the words of Jesus are the words of the Father. What Jesus saw the Father doing, that's what Jesus does. We've already dealt with that here in the book of John. 
To, to look at Jesus is to see the Father in action, is to hear the words of the Father. Jesus is teaching them. This is how you behave. This is uh, how you, 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 you make your way in God's kingdom. Fourth point, which, which emphasizes man's responsibility. Now, l- let me say this before I read that, uh, that, that fourth statement. Um, I, 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 I certainly am not one who is, is, is going to say that we, we, don't, uh, we don't need evangelism. We don't need uh, people praying for lost people. Uh, we, don't need, um, we don't need God's gospel. He's going to save whoever he's going to save. It's, it's done. No, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is the one who initiates salvation. It's not mankind. I am, I, I, I am not the focal point of, of divine life and understanding. I am only one of the trophies in God's case. It's all about Him. Beginning in verse 20, 47, Jesus is going to give a, a, a bit of a summary, and He's going to... to to highlight again some of the responsibility that we have as human beings to respond to this gospel that is given. Some of, uh, some of this we, we, have, we dealt with last week. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You don't have to worry about election. You don't have to worry about the Lamb's Book of Life. You don't have to worry about um, having to master all of the things regarding God's sovereignty in all things. What you're responsible to do is believe. And you shall have eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. That word world at the end of verse 51 is one that's caused many to stumble, thinking that, that um, if, if Jesus doesn't save everyone, that's universalism, clearly outside of the Scriptures. Well, then, then Jesus has made salvation possible for all men. He's drawn all men unto himself, has he not? We know that all men are not saved. So he's made, all, all, he's made it possible for all men. Prevenient grace. No. No. He draws all men, not with, without exception, but he draws all men without distinction. Meaning, all kinds of men... 
not every single one. And this word world is, uh, means basically the same thing. If you look at verse 41, we find that Jesus is talking to a group of Jews. And the Jews assumed, we read this in chapter 9 of the book of Romans earlier this morning, the Jews assumed that as long as they are a descendant, a physical descendant of Abraham, they're in. Everything's cool. I'm saved because of my lineage. And Paul says, <laughs> no, not, all Israel is not Israel. All those who are Jews are not saved. Oh, there are many Jews that were, to be sure. Still are. But your physical lineage doesn't guarantee anything. So the word world was strategically used by Jesus here. In this context, speaking to Jews. Because he's saying the benefit of his life is not just for those who are Jews, but also for those who are Gentiles. Those who are the world. Now the world might potentially mean uh, rocks and trees and lizards and arctic woolly bear caterpillars. But no, we know it doesn't mean that. It's a figure of speech. And this idea of world is not to be taken literally of every person on planet Earth. Not every person without exception, but every person without distinction. He gives his life for the world. My friends, there are lots of things that we don't understand in this world. Like how an Arctic woolly bear caterpillar can still be called alive when it has no heartbeat, no breathing for months and months and months. Every year, and yet it's still alive. And it does caterpillar type things come summer when it thaws out. Wow. Similarly, in the spiritual realm, God has to do a work first, He has to give me a new heart that can, that has the ability to respond to him, that can hear the preaching of God's gospel and can get it, that can benefit from the the prayers of the saints that they might come to faith in Christ. So why is it that we have to jump through these hoops in order to understand some of these things? It's for this reason, my friends. I preach the Bible. I go through carefully and meticulously, verse by verse, for this one reason. So that God will be glorified. It's not about me. 
This life is not about me. It's not about you. Even though you might think so. It's about God. God, we exist for His glory. He has compassion on whom He will have compassion. And those who are the beneficiaries of that compassion and that mercy are humbled. We are on our face in grateful thanksgiving to Almighty God who has opened up our eyes and unstopped our ears and gave us a new heart that has the ability to see, to understand, to hear, to comprehend all that he has done. Wow. Wow. That is grace. And he will be glorified in every situation, in every person's life, even those who persist in their rejection. Father, I thank you for your kindness to give us this word that we might understand with greater clarity, maybe even greater fuzziness after our time this morning because this is a hard thing for us to open up and try to, try to wrap our mind around. I, I pray, Father, as, as we go back and look at some of these verses that we've considered this morning, that from the pages of Scripture, your Holy Spirit will make it clear, plain to us what you have done in salvation, what you have done in the Lord Jesus, that you might receive all of the praise, all of the glory, all of the honor, and this we pray in his holy name.